Welcome to Business Trip, a podcast exploring the future of mental health and wellness. I'm Greg Kubin, and my co-host is Matthias Serebrinski. We're partners at SciMed Ventures, a fund investing in psychedelic medicine and frontier mental health. This episode is the second of a two-part series on the influence of the gut microbiome on mental health and wellness. The gut microbiome is the community of bacteria and other microbes that live in our body, with trillions living in our gut. Among the many important roles these bacteria play include producing neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine. Increasing evidence demonstrates that imbalances of bacteria in our gut affect neurotransmitter activity and influence bodily functions, ranging from depression and anxiety to pain and epilepsy. And now there's a new crop of startups looking to develop therapeutics that target the gut microbiome to treat these conditions. In today's episode, we chat with Dr. Chris Reyes, who is a biophysicist, serial entrepreneur, and founder of Bloom Science. Chris has a PhD from UC San Francisco with recognition from organizations such as the National Science Foundation and the Ford Foundation. Bloom Science's lead programs are focused on epilepsy and ALS, a neurodegenerative disease that affects nerve cells in the brain and spine. It's remarkable to imagine how microbes in the gut could help cure these conditions. It's truly at the frontier. In this episode, we explore the potential benefits of microbial therapeutics in epilepsy and mental health. Chris describes his lead programs at Bloom Science and his experience as a startup founder in this space. We also get into the nitty-gritty about clinical trials, intellectual property, and fundraising. And now to the episode with Dr. Chris Reyes of Bloom Science. Chris, welcome to Business Trip. I'd love to start by you giving a quick explanation. What is the gut microbiome and what is the gut-brain axis? Absolutely. So the gut microbiome is a collection of all the microorganisms, bacteria, viruses, etc., fungi that live in our gut. And the gut-brain axis is really the interplay between us and our um, neurological system and the bacteria in our gut really is a two-way pathway. The microbiome feeds into host systems, and the host systems affect the microbiome itself. So it's a really fundamental biology that, that we have observed. So gut microbiome, collection of all these organisms, gut-brain axis, basically the connection between gut and brain. Why is it relevant in the context of healthcare and human health? I think there's a couple of different angles from it. One is just really fundamental, important biology, right? When we think of some very basic daily things, appetite control, perfect example of gut-brain access. In terms of nutritional input, which microbes, of course, help to process. And then our feelings of satiation, feelings of appetite increasing or decreasing. So that's a really nice, simple example but so much is interconnected between our gut and our brain. In terms of health in general, this is a really rich area for us to explore, to not just understand overall how we tick, but also maybe to apply this to therapeutic interventions in those cases where largely we are really struggling to develop viable, tolerable medicines to, to help people with different neurological conditions and diseases. Can you expand a bit about what therapeutic interventions are possible with microbial therapeutics? Yeah, absolutely. So right now is a, just this 
fantastic time, right? We see really the beginning of the microbiome space as a therapeutic come from FMT, which is fecal microbiota transplant. And this has been done for quite some time, uh, particularly for conditions where we see a lot of GI tract uh, infections or, or issues like IBD. And this is really the genesis of using the microbiome as a thera- an actual therapeutic, using gut microbes isolated from people and putting them back into patients. But from that basic principle, like everything else in biology, we just begin to expand and expand and expand. And so we have very different classes. We have, as I mentioned, these kind of what I would call recombinant FMT, because these are not taking a single donor and putting it into a pill and giving to somebody, but much more controlled. Uh, we see um, more rationally selected limited consortia. This is what one of the two focus areas that Bloom does, which is selecting specific microbes that have particular functional properties for a given disease, all the way to engineering bacteria to produce a particular function or multiple functions, again, to address some underlying pathway or pathology in a given disease. The idea really comes from, one, the gut microbes are the most common cell type in the human body, right? They have naturally formed and evolved pharmacology, and they play really important functions that are absolutely essential for our health. So because of that, it gives us a couple of opportunities. We can figure out how those connections are made. That's that gut-brain access. But then also, since we're these are all derived from the human body, we can make the assumption, like most biologics, that these are going to be very well tolerated and safe, which again, in the whole neurospace, whether it's uh, neuropsychiatric conditions or things like epilepsy, we see tolerability is a real issue for our patients for current medications. You explained what FMT is. The kind of like layman's term for that that I have is basically a poop transplant. How accurate or not accurate that is for everyone to have an understanding of what FMT really means? Yes, this is why I love talking about this because I get lots of snickers and laughs at the table with my kids. Yes, it is poop pills and originally pioneered taking fecal poop samples from healthy people, putting them into capsules, and then the recipient that's the donor, would take those pills. Of course, it's actually a much more diligent process where they're actually created a manufacturing of these drugs utilizing a similar approach, donor-donated material, but then they put it through a lot of different controls to ensure safety and, and whatnot. But the basic principle is, yeah, you take somebody's healthy microbiome and you're transplanting it into somebody who maybe needs, has some GI issue or other issues. There is something taboo, uncomfortable about the idea of taking someone's poop for health reasons. We still really don't understand a lot of things about the brain. And now you add the gut and microbes, these living organisms in the gut. It creates a whole set of complications around layering up things that we don't fully understand. No, it's a really good point. I think one, going back to your point about the taboo, it's a really good point. Bloom Science, we're focused on the refractory epilepsy. That is those epileptic syndromes that don't respond to anti-epileptic drugs. So they've gone for dietary interventions, such as the ketogenic diet, which, you know, developed a hundred years ago to treat seizures, but still not really seen in terms of mainstream medical usage. Cannabis oil, which then, you know, recently in the last 10 years, seven years, was uh, turned into an actual medication, a cannabidiol. 
Um, but these were kind of treatments that patients were at a point where they're like, we don't have a viable solution. We need to look outside of what is mainstream. And I think ultimately at the end of the day, we are seeing some of these taboos kind of torn down a bit, really because patients are one have access to a lot more information. They're taking a much more active role in overall development of therapeutics and solutions. And because of that, they're demanding more and better. And I think that's fantastic. I mean, it's really key because ultimately this is the whole goal, right? Is to make a significant impact in the lives of these patients. So I do see around this whole space, lots of these kind of old limitations, if you will, getting torn down. Getting to the second part, yeah, it's a great point. It's what gets me so excited, to be frank, is the complexity that we're adding to thinking about the brain and how it functions. So many different pathways that we see are key for so many different processes, but little tweaks, little changes, mutations here or there have these profound effects, but they also manifest very differently depending on the individual. So you're right, our brain is still the cells in the brain, the neurons, astrocytes, all these different cell types, still doing basic biochemistry. What it comes down to is we got to think of the microbiome as just an extension of our body. It's a processing unit, directly interacts with neuronal cells. And if we can trace to some degree the origin of particular key molecules, neurochemicals, the building blocks of those key neurochemicals back to the gut, that's a great starting point. Mm-hmm. So you talked a bit about, I guess, your lead program, which is BL001, and you're interested in addressing refractory or drug-resistant epilepsy. And what I found interesting is that you are reverse translating outcomes around the ketogenic diet in treating epilepsy. Can you walk us through how you're doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first I will say I have to give full credit to Dr. Elaine Chow at UCLA because this is her work really was the foundational work and that we built our platform around. And she had a great question, which is a very simple. Uh, we know the ketogenic diet was specifically developed to treat seizures, highly effective. It obviously is a huge dietary change. It, and just to, for the audience, ketogenic diet in the most classical sense is 90% of your calories come from fat, five from carbohydrates, five from protein. So it's a very extreme diet. Accordingly, it came from ancient Greek studies to treat seizures through intermittent starvation. And then in the early 1900s, I think around 1920 or so, this was the golden age of biochemistry and people start really thinking about, okay, how do we, how do cells, how does the human body process energy? And I think this old data around intermittent starvation came back into play, but the idea was, can we do this in a better way than starving these patients. And so that was really the, the beginning of it. And so uh, the very simple question that Dr. Shaw had was, okay, well, if we have this radical change in diet, what's the effect on the microbiome, number one? Two, do those changes in the microbiome have any role in the seizure protectiveness? And the short answer for both of those questions was yes. Yes, there's a huge change. And yes, they are contributing. Because in those, partic- in those early studies, she's able to show a reduction of seizures through the ketogenic diet. The next question she had was, what are the actual specific microbes or pathways or metabolites 
that are actually contributing to that seizure protectiveness. And this is where really just elegant science meets brute force screening and just kind of screen through all these different microbes that had been increased because of the diet, increased in abundance. And interestingly enough, none of the individual uh, bacteria had an effect. It was only when she started to look at combinations was she able to see that a specific combination of two bacterial species uh, was able to recapitulate the seizure protectiveness of the diet. And that's where we Bloom came in, and that was their starting point. And so what we tried to do is build a more classical drug discovery platform around that basic concept. First thing we did, because all those studies were in mice, is we said, let's go get some clinical data, some fecal samples from people on the ketogenic diet. And so we got a really nice collection of about 70 healthy individuals on the diet. And then we had also started, and going back to the poo, we had a poo for science program where we just got fecal samples from anybody on the diet, irregardless of disease states. And we got a lot from epilepsy, depression, anxiety, oncology, ALS, a really nice broad data set. And so we said, okay, do we see the same changes in our samples from our humans as we do in the mouse studies? So the short answer was yes. Then we took those two species, right? And we created a strain library. And so this is where we get into the weeds, but it's really important. We're all the same species, but obviously some individuals can run faster. They can jump higher. The same is true for bacteria. You can have a species of bacteria, but individual isolates or strains are going to have inherent genetic diversity and they may perform some functions better. They may produce some metabolites at a higher level. And so we screened individual isolates of these two species to find those isolates that best fit our functional profile. And that functional profile was also a matter of going back to the primary data from the Shao lab and also the data we collected in the clinic. And again, characterizing metabolic changes, looking at inflammatory signals, et cetera. And really then now having a kind of a, that classic screening drug discovery approach with a very specific functional target, but now applied to the microbiome. And that's how we got our, our actual drug lead for our lead program. Yeah. Before we go into your second program, I want to make sure that when you say collection of bacteria, basically means consortium, which you referred to before. Yeah. So two things. So our drug is a, it's two bacteria in a very specific ratio. Our collection of strains, our strain library is we collect fecal samples from people and we literally plate them and we isolate every single strain we possibly can under different growth conditions. And then we identify that, what that strain is. And so we build up this proprietary strain library, essentially, and that's what we screen. We also worked with Rafael Valdivia, our other scientific co-founder at Duke, to help set up some of that initial screening and strain isolation. And now we continue to expand that as well. Got it. So the collection of bacteria is much wider than the consortium that you're using for a specific therapeutic or a specific bacterial therapeutic. Uh, 
one of the things that resonates with me a lot around the idea of the gut microbiome and how you're doing this is this is true polypharmacology in a way that we hear about polypharmacology all day, usually comes from small molecules and things like that. And it's fascinating that that same idea can be transported to bacterial therapeutics, to bacteria themselves. And it just makes so much sense, right? The, the pathways and the ways that most of the uh, interventions that we have been doing for millennia, for example, as you mentioned, intermittent starvation or intermittent fasting, it, it, it would be very, very hard to isolate one specific pathway. And it same applies to different foods or I'm guessing even exercise. So polypharmacology is a lot wider than how it may be described in small molecule drug design. Yeah, and it's a really good point. And I should really make emphasize this. We do think we've captured a really key component of the diet. Are we completely recapitulating the diet? There's no way. Because a large part of the diet is actual fat burning, right? So we don't see, for example, when we treat with these microbes, any of those metabolic changes that you get from basically having fat as the primary food source or energy source for people. So the, and these diets, intermittent starvation all the way to kitchen, that are really complex, but that's okay because we're trying to capture a very specific component. The polypharmacology is a really important point. And I saw a real need. My last company was focused on oncology, very complex biology. We tend to oversimplify. When I was looking around, I was thinking like, there's really this huge unmet need in CNS. And I think a big part of it is because the classic approach of starting with a single target, right? And saying, okay, well, this is our target hypothesis, and we're going to go validate that target, and then we're going to create a screen against that target, and then you build, 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 and you get a fantastic project, a fantastic resulting molecule. But your original hypothesis may be off, or it may be right, but you have to hit that target so much that that's where you get all these other side effects, as well as the fact that these diseases have multiple pathways, and so you're only hitting one of them, and this is where you get resistance, right? And so... I like this approach with the microbiome because these are living cells. They're not just doing one thing. They're not just producing one metabolite. They're producing a range of metabolites. They're directly interacting. And I like this one example where we have, we get this a lot, to be honest with you, more so in the early days, but I still get it, these questions every once in a while. Why not just identify the metabolites and give it in a pill? And it's a very legitimate question, right? I think the short answer is when you take a one given metabolite, you're actually missing out on the complexity of biology. The reality is that these bacteria aren't just producing that one metabolite. They're producing a range of intermediates in that biosynthetic pathway. I think this approach, which is a little bit more systems or, or as you described, polypharmacology is really key. Yeah, I like that. It doesn't get less simplified than an FMT. Yeah, absolutely. So one other question on this first program is you had talked about it's a combination of two strains with a specific ratio. How do you think about the intellectual property as you're commercializing this? It's a great question. You cannot get patents for naturally occurring bacteria. We are very much not taking a single strain approach because it's really difficult or it's impossible to get composition matter claims. Certainly you can get method of use claims and we do have those, but our strategy is really to look at the actual drug properties. The drug properties, it's a ratio of two bacteria. 
That's not naturally occurring. So that's a little bit of our strategy. And so as you build your consortia, design them, more than one bacteria, that is a design. That is a true inventive exercise. And that's how you're able to get composition matter claims. And then we do have discovery programs where we engineer bacteria because we you know, generate this huge knowledge base. And we're like, oh, actually, what if we you know, design these bacteria to produce these three metabolites and then process this other metabolite we think is actually toxic and convert it to something beneficial? And so that, of course, is a process or an exercise where it is completely inventive. And so I think that's really pretty standard, I think, within the industry. Mm-hmm. And I want to touch on the second program. If you want to just give a brief explainer of the second lead program. Yeah, absolutely. So our second program is actually in ALS and very debilitating disease. And ALS is, I think, going again through this really fascinating um, phase where we're just learning so much, really understanding the diversity of the genetic causes of the disease, different manifestations. There does seem to be acknowledged environmental factor because you have lots of studies that look at kind of genetic twins and one will manifest with the disease and the other won't. So there seems to be some sort of environmental trigger. And so that's led to a lot of the early studies in the microbiome and the role that the microbiome plays in not just onset, but also progression. Um, When you start laying things out by function, it's so hard not to start looking at other diseases and saying, wait a minute, okay, uh, oxidative stress, neuroinflammation, where else are we seeing these, right? And so we started to do that. And actually ALS came really, really up to the top of that kind of priority list based on what we were looking at. And right about the same time, some really great work at the University of Chicago and also the Weizmann Institute from Aaron Elinoff's lab came out looking very specifically the impact of the microbiome on ALS progression in SOD1 mouse models, and then also identifying very similar methodology to what Dr. Shao did at UCLA in epilepsy, the LNF lab was able to identify some specific microbes that seem to have an effect in ALS. And so we actually went and licensed that work. It was right in line with what we'd already been, the strains that we, the species that we'd already been working with. And that is our second program. And we're really excited to be moving forward with that as well. One important comment around this is most of the episodes that we've done are around mental health. So it begs the question, why wouldn't we be interviewing a company that's actually running trials and have programs around psychiatric indications? And one of the answers is that they're not really companies doing that. And the distinction between neurological disorders and psychiatric disorders is somehow arbitrary. There's a lot of kind of like common biological mechanistic explanations for both. And so our thesis is that the things that are being done in the neurospace could also be applied to a certain degree in the psychiatric space. And my hypothesis is that the reason why there are no trials for mental health or psychiatric indications and companies are working on different indications from dermatology to viral infections to ALS or epilepsy is that running trials for psychiatric indications is so, so hard. And so it's maybe not a good idea for a company to start with those indications. I'm curious how much you agree or disagree with what I just said. 
No, I completely agree. I will be unabashed about this. We want to be the gut brain access company and we absolutely have an interest in plans to go into neuropsychiatric conditions, but we're not Genentech. (laughs) We can't practically have 15 programs. It's a bit of a practical thing. I mean, it's just part of being a biotech startup. You have so many great ideas. There's so many things we can do. It's almost more of an exercise of focus, right? It's a harder exercise to make sure you're focused than it is to find additional opportunities. Our methodology and platform works. Now let's really start to expand it. And the practical side is exactly what you hit on. Unfortunately, the psychiatric clinical studies are really challenging. The number of patients, the readouts, the outcome measurements, I think that's improving significantly. Uh, There's a lot of great tech out there, but using these as validated measurement tools in clinical studies is always behind where the actual technology is. And so seizures is definitely at the top, but right behind it, almost at the same level, is cognitive issues. And so when you start actually having these conditions, whether it's ALS, whether it's pediatric epilepsy, there's a lot of psychiatric comorbidities, depression, anxiety, autistic-like behaviors, uh, cognition. I I think we sometimes oversimplify these diseases, but they're very complex, as you mentioned. And so one of the things that we're planning to do in our studies is not just, of course, yes, we absolutely have to reduce seizures. But we're going to look at all these other comorbidities because we think our approach is uniquely favorable to treating multiple comorbidities, not just seizures, because we're hitting so many different pathways. So this is where we can begin to build up some clinical knowledge about psychiatric opportunity and knowledge. Another thing that it's still puzzling to me is the idea of how much the gut microbiome changes over time. It depends on what you eat. It depends on the time of the day. It depends if you're stressed or not stressed. And obviously it depends on genetics. So how can you measure what the true microbiome of a person is if that microbiome is changing all the time? Yes, I will be maybe controversial in my own field and say, I don't think you can. I don't think you can say this is Greg's microbiome. I don't think that's the way it works. I think like all of our biological systems, right, there's a cycle, daily cycle, weekly cycle, monthly cycle, seasonal cycle. I think we, in our modern world, we forget that we evolved in very seasonal based environments, like our food input. Uh, What we ate was incredibly seasonal. Our bodies have not adapted to the fact that we can have apricots year-round, that we can eat meat, fresh meat year-round. We haven't evolved that quickly to catch up with how our society provides food and et cetera. So without a doubt, there's all this probably cycling that we're not really measuring well. And then, as you said, there's different factors that come into play. There's what you actually eat, and there's your mood, there's your stress, all these different things. The way we think about this in terms of intervention, of course, is is slightly different. How do you overcome that challenge, right? Because we need to deliver a fairly consistent signal from our therapeutic, which is these bacteria. Our hypothesis there is we can accomplish that through what we call dosing pressure, right? So unlike FMTs, right, fecal microbiota transplant, where essentially you're kind of... um, getting your donor and the recipient is taking it once or twice and just completely reshaping the ecosystem. We're planning to do daily 
or frequent dosing. And we think that dosing pressure really just establishes that niche, that little space within the ecosystem of our guts for our therapeutic strains, irregardless of some of the heterogeneity, some of the differences that we may see in individuals. And so you're now in humans in your studies. And so I guess you probably have learned a good amount from mouse models and leading up to this. How do you think about the translation of the, the microbiome in mice to humans? Yeah, I think it's a two-part question. The first is just mice to humans in the microbiome, and the mouse gut is actually quite different than the human gut. It's a decent model, I would say. So I think we can learn a lot, but it's definitely quite limited. I think a larger limiting factor, which has nothing to do with the microbiome, is actually the neurological mouse models. These are notorious for not translating well, right? We use these anxiety measurements that you see for mice across a number of different models because we're looking at the same outcome. Sure, I think you can measure an effect. It's a question, is an anxiety in a person really the same as hanging a mouse over a bowl of water (laughs) and seeing how it freaks out? Yes, of course, but to some degree. So, you know, I think there's definitely challenges there. But again, I kind of go back to when I started as a scientist at, at Biogen, which was, look, let's get two really robust mouse models that are reproducible, reproducible each model multiple times with multiple hands. Can you really communicate a strong mechanistic basis for the effect you're seeing in that model and back it up and also challenge it and have some challenge data to support it. And if you have that, then you have a really good case to move forward into the clinic with all the limitations that come with any work you do in these animal models. Got it. So Chris, let's talk about the commercialization and business side for a few minutes what are the challenges that bacterial therapeutics have that pharmacological interventions, other pharmacological interventions may not have? I think the challenge for the microbiota field in terms of a commercial product is questions also that you had earlier around IP and protection. And I think there's some misconceptions out there. Anybody can go isolate these strains and just go sell it at Whole Foods. And the short answer is you absolutely cannot. Like the FDA is very clear. If you Um, are going into a patient population and trying to treat symptoms of a disease, it is a drug. You cannot label it as a nutraceutical, for example. And these strains are really difficult to grow. So cost of goods is almost prohibitive for a supplement, although people are starting to break break through with that. And so I think there's also prescription behavior. I don't know if this is good or bad. The reality is, is that If you can get a prescription from your physician, people tend to trust that more than what they can buy at the store. Unless, of course, it doesn't work. (laughs) And so I think there's a couple of different, I don't really want to say barriers, but I think there's a couple of different trends there that really are quite favorable to being able to position any of these microbiota products very well within the larger drug space. But really comes down to, are they safe? And do they work? And if you can demonstrate that and then make a real impact on people's lives, the commercialization part will, you know, you can work through it. Any challenges there, I think. I would guess that also the ability to stabilize, in a way, these bacteria 
uh, it, it's really important, right? It's not the same if this needs to be refrigerated and even less if it needs to be freezed, right? So I would guess that the delivery mechanisms and what you do with these bacteria, which is another kind of huge scientific and engineering problem that it's most likely to be solved by companies like yours and not by a supplements company, so to speak. We really looked at the supplement angle more on the medical food, which is in between supplement and drug. And we looked at that really early on. One, as I said, the FDA is very clear about if you're going to go into, say, epilepsy or ALS and you're going to treat those patients, it's a drug. But we also looked at it from the perspective of like the investment. How much does it take to actually produce this product? And all the factors you just talked about, the manufacturing, the consistency, what you really need to be when a patient takes this for them to have confidence every time they take it, it's going to have the same exact effect. That takes a lot of built-in manufacturing capabilities, technology, quality control. And I'm not at all disparaging the uh, supplement field, but that's just it's just a lower standard compared to a pharmaceutical. And so I really do think that we can look at these as very different, frankly, complementary spaces. I think there's some great supplements. But the challenges, of course, is the quality. I think it's you can you, just because it has the name on that bottle doesn't necessarily mean that one brand is going to be the same as the other because there's really very little oversight on that. As an emerging field, as you have capitalized this business, you've probably been through hundreds of pitches at this point. You've raised your Series A, I believe, in 2021. How do you think about education and describing your programs, the science behind them. Like I'm thinking about the entrepreneurs who are listeners to this podcast. How have you navigated that process around education and creating a, a vision for a company where there really isn't much of a blueprint yet in the industry? Yeah. One is constantly evolving, which is for me personally is part of the fun, right? From when where we started and the field evolves, our science evolves, obviously what percent what we're presenting evolves, the sophistication on the investor side uh, evolves. And so the story we were telling when we started. The microbiome evolves. Exactly. <laughs> what we were pitching for our seed compared to our series A, compared to what we're pitching now for our series B, it's just very different. The earlier stage, yes, absolute complex biology, but we really try to ground it in simple concepts, um, really trying to ground it in in more traditional framework, but but also highlighting how we're different. I think that's really key. And of course, now it's almost the same, right? But it's in from a different perspective. Now we're like, look, 100%, we are developing microbes as therapeutics, but really what you need to focus on is the clinical data and plan, because to some degree, it's what our primary outcome measurements are going to be. It's where we're going to be at the end of this next raise. What is the business opportunity? What is the market opportunity there? All of it based in science, of course. So I think the storytelling changes. I'm a scientist by training. So one of the big challenges as an entrepreneur is to simplify. And then you simplify and then simplify again. <laughs> and then when you get there, do it again, because it's like we tend to really sometimes geek out about all the cool complexities. But it's really hard to tell a concise story that other folks can understand if you're always jumping into the really, uh, you know, nether regions of your data. So as a kind of a scientist entrepreneur, that's 
a challenge that I also have seen and also my own evolution and how I can approach that. I think that was. Yeah, that's great. Super interesting. All right. Well, I'm ready to move on to the rapid fire round if you are. Okay. So what is one big learning you've learned from a previous company that you've started that you have implemented in running Bloom Science? Mm. I really think that overarching vision is the absolute key to success. What is your big goal? And that's going to drive everything that you have. And I really got that from my first company and understanding what we're really trying to do. It's great. Putting on the hat of stock pickers, which microbiome company do you think will be the first one to have a blockbuster drug? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I'll tell you, there's two companies. I think Ceres, I think their recent approval in C. diff, I, I think that's going to really make some headways and that's approved. And then I actually think Synlogic, which is a synthetic bio company. They're in phase three. I'm really excited to see their progress has been fantastic. And so I'm really excited to see them continue. So I, I would probably pick those two. Why is now the time for this whole field to be taking off in a commercial capacity? Yeah, I think it's just a confluence of the maturity of the science, the investment, both from the entrepreneur side, from the biotech community, and from the investors to just dive in and build the foundation that will facilitate it. What is the biggest misconception about the gut-brain axis? I think the biggest misconception, right, is that it's all physical. Hmm. That there is a physical connection between our microbes and the CNS versus it being truly more systems with metabolites and peptides and extracellular vesicles, products from the microbes that go into other pathways. It's much more complex than just a physical interaction between, say, a microbe and an enteric nerve ending in the gut. How do you personally promote a healthy microbiome? This is great. I could actually do a whole hour's conversation about this, but food is just making sure really have a healthy dosing of fermented foods at Bloom, we have a whole refrigerator full of kombucha <laughs> and exercise. Exercise is really key actually to our uh, gut microbiome. All of those, just healthy eating and exercise. It's really one of the biggest key factors to, to keeping that healthy. Awesome. Well, I'm going to go drink a kombucha and eat a hot dog with sauerkraut and then work out. Exactly. So, <laughs> maybe not in that order. Maybe I'll work out first. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, Chris, this was wonderful. Thank you. Really, really helpful and clear explanations on a complex topic. So that to me is a sign of a good entrepreneur. So I appreciate that. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for the compliment. Thank, thank you, Chris. Chris, Chris. This is Business Trip, a podcast exploring the future of mental health and wellness. If you like this episode, you can help us by subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Symed Ventures. And if you're building a company in frontier mental health, hit us up at hi at which you can find in the show notes. 
I'm Greg Kubin, and my co-host is Matthias Serebrinski. Caitlin Nur coordinates our podcast. Production and editorial assistance comes from Jonathan Davis. Sound design and engineering by Nico Ray. Our theme music is by Dorian Love, and additional music credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time.